0: at Work, Wisdom in the World podcast, where you'll hear a deeper cut at what's going on in the world in relationship to your professional path and in relationship to the greatest good. I'm Dr. Joni Carley, and today's subject is money. It's no accident that money is called currency, because it's a lot like electrical currency. They both flow, both can do great harm and great good, and both can have neutral impact and both are dependent on the user to determine their impact. Electrical currency requires a positive and a negative charge, and without the right balance of both, there is no healthy flow. Well, monetary currency also has dualistic charges. We don't call them positive and negative because when you use positive and negative about electricity, they don't have any charge or meaning of their own. But when you use the words positive and negative in the world of money, they can be loaded with unintended meanings. So instead of positive and negative, we'll use the terms yin and yang. I don't want to go into a big Eastern philosophy lecture now. I speak and I give workshops on the yin and yang of success. And I have an article called the yin and yang of success on my website at www.joneycarley.com. So in terms of Eastern philosophy, The positive charge of electricity would be yang, and the negative charge would be yin. It's funny, some regions would see the exact opposite, but either way, yin and yang are good neutral terms for looking at the duality of things. In terms of money, the yang is the numbers, the goals, the established benchmarks, like share prices and profits. The yang of money is about the hard data. The yin is about intention, understanding, creativity, values, consciousness, compassion, things like that. And just like strong, positive, and negative charges have to be in balance with one another to create a good, strong electrical spark, the combination of a good, strong yin and a good, strong yang balance when it comes to money has the power to transform people, places, and situations, even global situations. We have mythologies about electricity, but the kind of story-type mythologies that we have are about that kind of primal spark of electricity, that uh, metaphysical piece of electricity. But because it's scientific, the story of electricity is mostly a story of science. And it's also a story of the limitations of science because eventually, A lot of what we think is truth about science today will be proven to be myths by scientists in the future. But by and large, the language of stories about electricity is pretty concrete. But the language and the mythology around money is much more complex. You could say that the mythologies around money carry a lot more charge, no pun intended. Usually the more money that's involved, the more the charge. In an article in Bnet on July 6th, Mark Jaffe wrote that wealthy people know money is just money. In other words, Jaffe saying that wealthy people aren't bound by the stories and the myths that the rest of us are. He's saying that they're not distracted by interpretations of money, that they don't get all charged up by it one way or the other. Well, I don't believe that wealthy people are immune from money myths, but I do think he's on to something. In order to have a healthy relationship with anything, you need a certain kind of objectivity, a kind of an equanimity, and we all need a realistic picture of what money does and what money doesn't do. Both money and electricity have the potential to charge things or energize them, and just like the electrical charge in and of itself doesn't do much of anything without the human applying his or her intention to it. Well, the potential charge of money is also dependent on the consciousness of the people who make it, the people who have it, and the people who spend money, no matter how wealthy they are. And also, the potential of money is dependent on the system it flows in. And we forget that we are fish in water of a capitalist stream that has gone crazy. I think there's a lot of power in Jaffe's point about the wealthy understanding that money's just money. And even though I don't think it's entirely true about all the wealthy people in the world, I think he's got a really great point about being in a personal place where you can be very objective about money. So let's talk about financial freedom from the perspective that money equals money, but it doesn't equal anything else, in the same way that electricity is electricity. And also from the perspective that money, like electricity, is highly charged. Financial Freedom. Can you have financial freedom without having cash? I think Mother Teresa is a great example of that. She ran a multi-million dollar international operation that was always cash poor, but she was able to keep on giving from the vantage point of faith in the prosperity of the divine. And she wrote that she always had exactly what she needed to do what she wanted to do. Never more and never less. Because of her faith, she had a powerful financial freedom, even though she took vows of poverty. But I've done it both ways. I've worked with financially robust organizations, and I've worked with vow of poverty based nonprofit organizations. <laughs> and unfortunately, I've worked with a couple of vow of poverty based for profits. But anyway, I've worked with a whole lot of different sizes and strengths of, of organizations. And as much as I'm a great admirer, there's no question in my mind. That Mother Teresa's take on prosperity has limitations. But it's so interesting how many people feel that anything that delivers social or personal good should have some kind of struggling financials attached to it. I have worked with many leaders in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors, and the one thing I've learned is that it's a lot easier to claim financial freedom, and it's a lot easier to act in prosperous and generous ways when there's a healthy stash of cash. Because just like electricity, money's a resource for making things happen. The more sourced a project is, the less stress. The corollary of that is that just like when there's high voltage electricity, when big money flows, big damage can happen just as easily as big gain. Nobody would argue that Mother Teresa had an impressive flow of monetary currency, but she also had an impressive flow of social currency. In other words, she had a really good yin and yang balance, and most great leaders do. Mother Teresa's financial freedom came from her balance, from her ability to work from a very universal consciousness. First of all, she didn't buy into the myths about money not being available, and even though she functioned within the world's worst poverty. But she really understood balancing the flow of goods and services with balancing the flow of compassion, connection, justice, relationship. And she's one of the greatest winners we've ever known in the world. But imagine what we could have done if Mother Teresa had been proactively funded. If we had fully charged a vision like that at that time, how would life on this entire planet be different? Imagine if we said, as a collective, that with our currency, we want to charge the vision that all kids eat and all kids go to bed safe and warm. First, period. What if we said we won't fund any more guns or creating any more plastic junk until all our kids are fed? Financial freedom comes from hardcore acknowledgement of what we're all investing in. Our young kind of investments are mutual fund stocks and other financial products and we've had a real young imbalance of understanding. We've had a young dominance in the definition of success. We forgot to factor in what was happening to people around those mutual fund stocks and other financial products performing. The yin investments have to do with asking whether or not the resources are ultimately flowing toward the greatest good. I'd like to offer you a new definition of financial freedom. Financial freedom is having your money flow in sync with your values. That's why Mother Teresa was financially free. For us today, it requires looking deeper and asking what the real price of oil is. It requires asking what's the real price of sneakers made by children in sweatshops. What's the real price of the rise in human slavery right now? We even have to ask, what's the real price of orange juice? Did you know orange juice is one of the most artificially priced commodities, and it's one of the worst products for the environment? Uh, I have nothing against orange juice. I just want to point to it because in order to have true freedom, we just have to have a deeper cut on the cost of things that we just take for granted, as simple as orange juice and toothpaste. I'm a great admirer of my friend John Perkins' work. John wrote the books Hoodwinked and Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And here's what he said in one of his most recent newsletters. He says, many costs are never taken into account when determining the price of goods and services we consume. They are all too often considered externalities. Those externalities include the social and environmental costs of the destruction of resources, the pollution, and the burden on society of workers who become injured or ill and receive little or no health care, and the indirect funding of companies that are permitted to market hazardous products, dump wastes into rivers or oceans, and pay employees less than a living wage, just to name a few. All of these and more contribute to the current global economic crisis. Because so many resources are underpriced, they're wasted casually and depleted unnecessarily. Instead of recycling or using them more efficiently, we continue to drill, mine, extract, and manufacture with reckless abandon. Is the age of reckless abandon really what we want to be most remembered for in generations to come? Great question, John Perkins. The age of reckless abandon, where do we go from here? How do we consciously evolve what we fund and how we fund it? How can we be more conscious and more higher-intentioned about what we capitalize? What does it mean that we heavily monetize financial sector leaders who just churn a lot of cash, while we minimally monetize caregivers? In other words, why do we source young professions and starve yin sector leaders? Recovering from the age of reckless abandon is about changing what we value and how we value it. Financial freedom comes from recognizing that none of us is safe and fed until all of us are safe and fed. Financial freedom means that we can overcome our own mythologies about money enough to get that the more we source the greatest good for ourselves personally and for the world around us the healthier our own flow of currency. staying current with the currency, and it's about the role of the human condition in the flow of currency. Let me give you an example. I recently heard on CNN that American armed forces have asked that nutrition programs be ramped up in grade schools because so many people are too fat for the military. That seemed really strange to me, that we would mandate life-giving social policies in order to kill and be killed, but we couldn't do it for any other reason. Could it be that a culture that thrives on the deadliness of a militia-based economy produces imbalances like rampant obesity or vice versa? Does a physically deficient culture have disproportionate fears about survival? And how would it be if we invested in health for health's sake? What if we valued the human condition for what it's really worth? And that brings me to the next idea I'd like to share that to make the most of money, it's important to stay current with the currency. And I mean current with the currency in two ways. First, that we have a personal competency with our own personal finances and that we self-examine about our personal mythologies about money. And the second way I mean staying current with the currency is that we're always increasing our personal literacy of the economic system that we live and we work in. Because no matter how much you already know about the economic system, there's always room to learn, and it has such a huge impact, especially in a capitalist system like ours, on every single thing in every day you live. And if we don't do what it takes to stay current with a larger stream of currency, it's like trying to float your boat on a river you don't know anything about. So from whatever you know or don't know about the economy, ask yourself some really, really hard questions, and then go find the answers. This segment of Wisdom at Work, Wisdom in the World is called Business and Currency. Just like a strong electrical spark needs a balanced positive and negative charge, leading edge leaders balance the young of keeping the books in the black and keeping production on track with their yin investments in values, compassion, justice, creativity, things like that. Developing a good flow of currency is important for an organization, both its yang monetary currency and its yin cultural currency. What I'm calling yin, or what's known in the field as cultural currency, is increased by building on values. Even though yin or cultural currency doesn't concern itself with financials per se, We know that when yin currency is flowing in balance with good fundamentals, you get great data on productivity, retention, share prices, profits, all kinds of great stuff, public relations. It's important for organizations to constantly recharge and develop their cultural currency. Of course, it's good for people to personally recharge their own sparks, but it's more important for those strong sparks that we develop in individuals to come and work together collectively in a creative commons and understand that each other can be conduits for the greatest good for all of us. The way we do that is we just pay attention to the golden rule. We're finding out that distributing currency in accordance with the golden rule has a much better return on investment than when you distribute according to quarterly earnings organizations and individuals are finding out that they can act in a sort of enlightened self-interest and it produces win-wins and so we're, we're evolving past that old paradigm of win-lose and we're looking at a more positive culture. There's a shift in consciousness breaking through. It's a shift that's happening under the radar of the storytellers behind the TV news desks but there is a critical mass of individuals who now realize that the way we've been defining success has set new benchmarks on the scale of failure. And those people with vision are beginning to develop new best practices. In fact, there was just a series of dialogues at the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania, and I'd like to read you an excerpt from those dialogues. A panelist says, I think ethics can certainly be taught, but can it be learned? That's the larger question. I do think if we want to effectively develop a more ethical society, then it needs to exist at every stage of life from childhood moving forward. I think the way you do that is by truly meaning that these are the values we want in a civil society which gets you back to how you incentivize and reward people. People will get to the top whether it's a company a government or an organization didn't necessarily have to be ethical. In fact many times perhaps they were acting unethically to get an advantage that allowed them to achieve that level of success And then we celebrate that success. I think if we actually start to create a system that truly does value and reward those who act ethically, and therefore we would have different metrics to measure performance, then maybe we'll have a more just and ethical ways in which we can conduct business and conduct ourselves in society. That's from the Wharton School Dialogues. Leading-edge leaders understand that they need to balance the yin and the yang. They have to balance the profits with the people, they have to balance the tasks with the culture. Paying attention to the softer aspects of leadership used to be seen as risky, but there's an evolutionary band of leaders who understand that the reflective is the causative. They understand that creating resignation creates poverty and that sourcing vitality creates abundance. I've got some great tools for helping you or your organization create a values-driven platform for success. So please contact me if you'd like to unleash your spark. Money and culture. Is it any surprise that we're dragging financially at a time in history when we're dragging so badly morally? There was a moral crisis long before we had an economic crisis. And the moral crisis has still not really been squarely, deeply, systemically addressed. World currencies are failing at unbelievable rates, and we're engaging in immoralities at unbelievable rates. The rates for human slavery, for institutionalized greed, and for our capacity to murder at a scale that could disintegrate the planet is absolute insanity. Two examples of that, the BP oil spill and a recent Supreme Court decision. I'd like to read you uh, a take from the Wharton School dialogue on the BP oil spill. Mr. Rogan says, within the context of the BP oil spill, the entire U.S. Congress should also take the blame because they created a system that allowed something like this to happen. They're so quick to demonize BP, and I think BP rightfully is being criticized. But there are many other actors involved. When bad things happen, there's always this notion of who's the scapegoat. Who is the one person that we're going to blame? And I think it's much more complex than that. There are a lot of people who are responsible for what happened. So says Wharton School. I think we're all responsible for what happened. And I think part of our responsibility is to cut through the apathy. Because how else, other than apathy, could we ever have ended up with a Supreme Court that would give corporations the right of the individual in political campaigns? And that's the right to be invisible. Think of our political culture as a big fishbowl we're all moving around in. If the biggest fish in the bowl, bigger by billions of times, can't be identified, it's going to have profound influences on the whole culture. The Supreme Court's decision to give the corporation the right of the individual and to remain non-transparent in political campaigns was a Supreme Court nod toward oligarchy and what oligarchy means is that we're being governed by a very small group of people. The handful of corporate conglomerates who make up the oligarchy are not committed to a process that is by the people for the people or of the people. Corporate giants are our ruling group today. They are our oligarchy. But their stranglehold is loosening up because we now know that the profit-at-any-cost practices are obsolete and that new systems that are much more productive, their financials are much better. These systems are rising up, and these systems have a much better balance between the yin and the yang we've been talking about. And there's a new professional sensibility arising that, that better understands the value of partnership that better understands the value of um, emotional and appreciative intelligence, and that better understands the value of dignity in the workplace. The trick we're faced with is to preserve the efficiencies and the technologies that arose from that profit-at-any-cost mentality or that more yang-dominated paradigm that we've been living in for a long time, while we do what it takes to develop the yin or, or the softer indicators that have been left grossly undersourced by the young dominant ideas in our economy. This segment of Wisdom at Work, Wisdom in the World, is our inspiration station. I'd like to read to you from Lynn Twist's book, The Soul of Money. Lynn Twist is one of the Best fundraisers in the world, and she's done it with values driven campaign strategies. Here she talks about Buddha's wisdom. Buddha told his followers that whatever they chose to give their attention, their love, their appreciation, their listening, and their affirmation to would grow in their life and in their world. He likened one's life and the world to a garden. Garden that calls for sunlight and nourishment and water to grow. In that garden are the seeds of compassion, forgiveness, love, commitment, courage, and all the qualities that affirm and inspire us. Alongside those seeds, and in the same garden, are the seeds of hatred, the seeds of prejudice, the seeds of vengeance, and the seeds of violence, and all the other hurtful, destructive ways of being. These seeds, and many more like them, exist in the same garden. Seeds that grow are the seeds we tend with our attention. Our attention is like water and sunshine, and the seeds we cultivate will grow and fill our garden. If we choose to invest our attention in the seeds of scarcity, like acquisition, accumulation, greed, and all that springs from those seeds, then scarcity is what will fill the space of our life and the space of our world. If we tend the seeds of sufficiency with our attention and use our money like water to nourish them with soulful purpose, then we will enjoy a beautiful harvest. So that's a lot of what we've been talking about in this podcast, that Buddha's using the idea of water and sunshine as nourishment We're using the idea as that spark, that that essential energy, that place where our creativity and our intellect come together, where our inspiration and our fact-checking come together and create the strongest possible charge for getting things done, where we keep our attention on the positive and on what's possible and on vision rather than on criticizing and holding power over the second and last passage I'd like to read to you from The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist is the very end, and this is where she challenges all of us. She says, In this world of turmoil and conflict, violence and retribution, I believe there are millions of people taking responsibility not just for change, but also for transformation, for creating the miracle of the butterfly. We may be in the minority, but we are everywhere. And we are connecting with one another in Senegal and Ethiopia and Ecuador and Afghanistan and France, Sweden, Japan and Germany, in Iowa, Michigan, New York and California, even in Hollywood, in spectacular careers and in the workaday world that keeps it all going. We are the hidden mainstream, we are the genetic directors of this living system. If we continue to connect with each other, we can create out of the gluttonous caterpillar the miracle of the butterfly. I challenge you to use your money, every dollar, every penny, every purchase, every stock and every bond, to voice this transformation. I challenge you to use the money that flows through your life, and it does flow through all of our lives, to express the truth and context of sufficiency. I challenge you to move the resources that flow through your life toward your highest commitments and ideals, those things you stand for. I challenge you to hold money as a common trust that we're all responsible for using in ways that nurture and empower us and all life, our planet, and all future generations. I challenge you to imbue your money with soul, your soul. And let it stand for who you are, your love, your heart, your word, and your humanity. And so we've come to the last part of our podcast, and this is the coaching corner. You know how we call electricity juice? Well, basically what I've been getting at is that currency juices expression. Like when electricity comes out of the wall, it comes through wires into a lamp, and it juices the expression of light. So I want to ask you these coaching questions. Number one, if you think of your personal energy as a kind of a currency, what would juice it best? In other words, how can you develop both your yin and your yang charges to create the ultimate spark? Number two, what's the very best expression for your energy to have? How can your unique currency fund the best that you have to fund? Number three, Where is your personal currency flowing? Where is it jammed? Where is it shorting out? Is your currency situation flowing, stopped, or out of control? Number four, are you juicing the things that make life juicy? Number five, I believe everybody is born with unlimited potential for energy, but just for the sake of this coaching exercise, imagine that you're born with a 100 units of circuitry. How many of your units are plugged in to getting vengeance for things, to withholding communications, to feeling bad about the past? The question here is what kind of personal homework needs to be done to free up the full range of your currency? And last but not least, question number six. Are you sourcing the work you want to do and are you sourcing the world you want to live in. This is Joni Carley. Thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time, and we'll go out with my good friend Stephen Wise's song from his website, wiseworldmusic.com.